Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 21st, 2021. That would be 5-21-21 for those of you that recognize numeric patterns and like to look at them like me. Anyway, we uh, have an expert council Q&A show because it is a Friday, Friday, Friday. This is what we've got on the docket for you today. We will be hearing from new, yes I said new, expert council member John Bush, who will be answering questions for you guys on cryptocurrency, blockchain, entrepreneurship, and health and nutrition, specifically in the worlds of things like Kratom and CBD, etc., because he's kind of into all those things. He's a great dude, been working with him a long time. He's going to answer a question today on crypto seed phrases and using, what are they, what do they do, and using them across multiple wallets, etc. John Pugliano will be talking about profiting from coming shortages, stagflation versus inflation, and some other thoughts on basically what's been going on in the economic and financial markets. Patrick Rohrman, we haven't heard from him for a while. He's still out there doing great things in the world of knife making. He has a question today on <clears throat> the right equipment for a professional knife sharpener, professional simply being somebody paid to sharpen knives. Um, next up, we have Nicole Sauce. Um, a, a listener wrote in and asked about something they heard about, mold and coffee. Uh, and this person wanted to know, is moldy coffee a problem? Does it exist? Does mold, if, if coffee's mold when it's green, will it survive the roasting process? Is this a thing or not? Nicole Sauce will talk about that, knowing a little bit about the coffee business. Um, Jeff Lawton will talk about using a three-acre pond in a permaculture design. And I'm going to tell you about something I'm calling a PSYOP being run on our military members. I've heard this from multiple sources, all high-level, long-term career officers and senior NCOs across all five branches of military service. Yeah, five, Coast Guard being there. Haven't heard anything from Space Force yet, but they're still trying to get it off, off the ground, pun intended. Um, and there are no long-term you know, career officers in the Space Force because it's not been around long enough yet. So um, the five military services that have been with us for a while, there's something that's being done in the name of wokeness And I think it's a PSYOP. I think it's a big, giant bluff. And the fact that all these men have come to the same conclusion about their future is what tells me that. And I have not actually actively discussed this back with any of them. This has been something that I had an initial feeling on, and I have simply inquired, or it's been brought to my attention, and I've simply shut my mouth and listened. And as I've listened and I've observed... I can only come to one conclusion. I think you might agree when I lay it out, and it might actually be kind of a moment for some of these gentlemen. However, maybe not so much, because I don't think it's not a threat. I just think it is a psychological operation to shut them up. And I bet you you won't have heard this angle on this problem, if you've even heard about this problem yet, anywhere else. We'll get to all that in just a moment. I want to start out with something. <clears throat> I wanted to talk a little bit about vacations and coming back, and I think I'll hold off on that because I think I'm going to talk about it next week on one of the Miyagi Mornings episodes. But I did want to also talk about kind of 
downtime and meditation states, whether they're actual meditation or simply meditative actions like taking a walk. And I found this great quote to end the week on from Francis Bacon. He said, silence is the sleep that nourishes wisdom. And this is something that's been stated many ways, known by many people, used by many people, even people who would have never phrased it that way or thought of it that way or thought of it as medita meditation. Um, Albert Einstein, one of the greatest minds that ever existed, said frequently that some of his greatest work, some of his greatest revelations came while doing nothing. Came while doing nothing. Came while engaged in mindless activity that allowed the mind to rest. And I would say to me that this state is almost like waking dream state. Steve Jobs was big on this. I think he called it nothing time or something like that. Get up really, really early in the morning so there was this time in the middle. You're not exercising. You're not really doing anything. You're just awake and aware, but also not attached. And, and many different visionaries and luminaries have had, I guess, again, what you would call nothing time or quiet time being integral into the revelations that led them to great discoveries or great achievement. Silence is the sleep that nourishes wisdom. My nothing time is generally between when my wife leaves to go pick my grandchildren up in the morning and she comes back. There was for a while I'd try to get more done faster. So what I was doing as soon as she left, I was going out and getting started on my day of taking care of the birds and checking all the systems and all of that. And then for a while I started working on the business during that time. Again, a different way of getting ahead. So I would be doing the T-SPAS item of the day. I would be laying out my idea for Miyagi mornings or what have you or gathering some information for a show. What I've tried to do now is if I do any of that, I do that while she's she's getting ready to leave. She's, you know, going to the bathroom and, you know, getting ready to go and, and what have you. So I'm not, I can't talk to her anyway. So I kind of do And when she leaves, I shut my computer. I take my coffee. I call one of the dogs up on the couch next to me. And I do absolutely nothing. If the TV was on, it usually isn't, but if it was on, it goes off. If there was music playing, it goes off. There is silence, which becomes the sleep that nourishes wisdom. And I think we all need a bit more of this in our lives, especially those of you who are in that stage where you have young children. Because, you know, kind of we're in like a half-parenting stage. Now, we have the kids here five days a week from early morning till late evening every day, five days a week. And sometimes on weekends because the, the whole family comes over or whatever. There's a lot of noise. Kids make noise. It's what they do. <laughs> and I think we all need to figure it out. And I think it's even worth getting up 30 minutes early for. Even if you already get up early to work out or whatever. 30 minutes of nothing. 30 minutes of true silence. 30 minutes of true silence. Uh, the most activity would be, like I said, maybe a quiet walk. Um... But anything that requires deep commitment needs to be let go. Anything that's distraction needs to be let go. Just give yourself even 15 minutes of quiet time. With that, let's go ahead and, and jump on into this. We're going to lead off with a question on seed phrases, a question about using the same seed phrase for multiple wallets, how seed phrases work and things like that, with newest expert council member, John Bush.
Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is John Bush of Live Free Academy. I recently put together a really extensive 14-hour workshop teaching folks how they can use cryptocurrency, how they can invest in it, how they can make money from it, all the ins and outs, ups and downs. We also had a component on decentralized finance and finally a bonus section on internet privacy and if you want to check it out, I strongly encourage you to do. A lot of people have gotten a lot of value from it. You can go to CryptoAndPrivacy.com, CryptoAndPrivacy.com. I am very honored that Jack Spearco has invited me to be on the expert council. I intend to provide immense value for listeners. And the first time that I'm going to do that here is answering a question that someone submitted to Jack. And the question is this. Can you use the same seed phrase across multiple wallets? I ran across a post on Reddit saying you can use the same seed phrase across multiple wallets and that a wallet is basically an application you use to access the blockchain. Maybe you'd like to dive into this next time you do a crypto show or Miyagi morning. Just found it interesting. Thought other folks would as well. Thanks for all you do. Enjoy your vacation. Okay, so to help people understand this, I want to first challenge folks how they think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ownership. When people say I have one Bitcoin, in reality, they don't have in their possession any Bitcoin because Bitcoin is simply digital information that's stored on the blockchain. The blockchain is a decentralized and distributed database that's stored on nearly 10,000 different computer servers all across the world. That blockchain is a collection of blocks. Each of the blocks contains the transaction information, who sent what to whom, when they sent it, and how much they sent for the approximate 10 minutes before the block got added to the blockchain. It's not always like that, but that's how it's supposed to work. So a block is a collection of information concerning transactions that took place recently on a given cryptocurrency network. Those transactions say Bob sent Bitcoin from Bob's public address to Alice's public address. That is where the information for Bitcoin is stored. You don't actually have, you don't have in your possession Bitcoin, nor does your wallet have possession of that Bitcoin. What your wallet has possession of is the private key that's needed in order to unlock access to the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency associated with the public address which in turn, there's a blockchain ledger accounting that says this public address has this much Bitcoin on it. Whoever has the private key that's associated with that public address can then unlock access to that cryptocurrency and send it to another public address, which in turn has another accounting on the blockchain were that transaction to happen. Okay. Essentially, a cryptocurrency wallet is a piece of software that generates private key public address combinations and allows users to transact cryptocurrency on a blockchain. My favorite type of cryptocurrency wallet is known as a BIP32 hierarchically deterministic wallet. 
BIP32 stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal 32. Hierarchically deterministic means this. This is how a BIP32 wallet works. My favorite BIP32 wallet is called Coinomi. Very safe, very secure, and I especially like it for beginners because it's very simple to use. Here's what happens when you start up, when you open a Bitcoin, a Coinomi wallet for the first time. It's a multi-wallet, I should say, that enables you to do business with many, 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 many different cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin. When you set up the Bitcoin wallet, a random number is generated, a really long random number. This random number then goes through a mathematical function and creates what's called a master private key. The master private key starts with the word or letters XPRIV, XPRIV, and then it has a long string of numbers and letters. This is what's called a master private key. The master private key also has a corresponding seed phrase, also known as a mnemonic, also known as a recovery phrase, also known as the private key. It's the same thing. It's just a visual representation that makes it easy for human beings to understand, to write down, and to back up. From that master private key, or the recovery seed phrase, the wallet then generates individual private keys that then generate a corresponding public address. Each public address has a corresponding private key that unlocks access to the cryptocurrency that's sent to the public address. Okay? That's how a cryptocurrency wallet works. That's how a BIP32 hierarchically deterministic wallet works. I highly recommend these wallets because the big improvement that BIP32 had was you no longer have to update or back up your wallet after you create a new private key public address combination. All you have to do is update and back up that private key. Here's another reason why I recommend it. And to answer your question, that master private key can be imported into any number of BIP32 hierarchically deterministic wallets, and it will be compatible. What this means is if you set up a Coinomi wallet, you send cryptocurrency to the public addresses that are generated by the private keys that's generated by the master private key, and then all of a sudden Coinomi, they just start slacking off. Maybe they're getting unemployment and they no longer want to work on their wallet anymore, and the Coinomi wallet's no longer functional. We don't like it anymore. It's buggy. It doesn't do what it says it's going to do. You can take that seed phrase, also known as a master private key, and you can import it into any other HD wallet. To bring this all back to square one where we started, it's that master private key that gives you access to all of the cryptocurrency associated with each public address on a various blockchain. The master private key is where the rubber meets the road. Whoever has the master private key has control over all of the cryptocurrency and all of the public addresses ever generated by that master private key. The master private key is extremely important, as is the master, the seed phrase, the same thing as the master private key. So yes, you can take your seed phrase, you can input it or import it into any different BIP32 HD wallet. You can use it on multiple wallets. You could even, I wouldn't advise to do this, but you could have your 
your recovery phrase. You could have your master private key functional on your Coinomi wallet. Then you can open up an Exodus wallet and have it functional there. And if you spend money out of one address, you'll be able to see it get spent out of the other wallet. I wouldn't recommend that. It can get confusing. I would recommend with Coinomi, however, you can use the same seed phrase on a desktop wallet as you do on your mobile wallet. At the end of the day, it's a good idea to have like a desktop wallet or a cold storage wallet, like a paper wallet that has, or maybe even a hardware wallet, although those have their setbacks. Maybe we could talk about it on another time. Have a bunch, have your stash, your savings of Bitcoin on the cold wallet, and then maybe you have your mobile wallet that spends like a hot wallet. But I digress. So thank you very much to Jack Spierko's audience. This is actually being live recorded on a follow-up session that I did with some of the participants in the workshop to ensure that they really have a firm grasp on how cryptocurrency works. If you'd like to gain access to the 14 hours of content that we did over the course of two days and to this follow-up session that we're doing right now on May 19th, you can go to cryptoandprivacy.com, cryptoandprivacy.com. I guarantee that if you participate in this course, you will go from crypto curious to crypto confident If not, I'll give you your money back. Again, that's CryptoAndPrivacy.com. You know, I'm going to say, I think John is going to be a tremendous asset to the show as an expert council member, um, bringing a tremendous amount of diversity because, again, he can speak to entrepreneurship, especially online e-commerce, cryptocurrency in just about all aspects of it, uh, from taking it as a merchant to trading it to holding it, etc., And in the kind of alternative space of uh, CBD and uh, Kratom and things like that as well. So I, I, I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't go, hey, stupid, there's a really great resource that's a good friend of yours. There's a co-host on the Goose, uh, Unloose the Goose podcast sitting right there who just takes on anything that's an opportunity in front of them who would obviously say yes And sometimes, like I said yesterday, life is a teacher, and some of us are slow learners sooner or later in one thing or another. Uh, as my good buddy David says, occasionally we all look a window. So sorry I didn't bring John on as a council member sooner. But send me questions for John. Remember, you can send questions for John, uh, other John, John Pugliano, who you're going to hear from next, Pat Rorman, Nicole Sauce, Jeff Lawton, Ben Falk, all our great expert council members, Tim Toolman Cook, all the people I'm leaving out right now. Everybody, you can always find out everybody that's on the council at the Meet the Expert Council page. It's under the About tab at thesurvivalpodcast.com, where you can learn all about them and the questions they can ask for you. I do have a, res a resignation from the Expert Council. No kind of bad blood or anything. Just we're we, we're being pikers and we know it. Um, Mike and Sula Prees, they've taken off on this journey across the country. Uh, they've realized there will be perpetual homeschoolers and perpetual parents. Uh, they've raised multiple generations. They keep adopting kids. And they're like, we're just not getting the job done. So if somebody wants to take kind of the homeschool parenting uh, position, you can email me about that, TSPC expert in the subject line, just like you do for a question. Email is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Don't give me a full resume out of the gate. Give me a paragraph, because one of the things I'm looking for is can you speak well and can you condense ideas down into you know bullet point type responses for a show like this. So give me a paragraph on you know why you think you'd make a good fit for that. And if you'd like to apply for any position in the expert council, uh, let me know. Again, paragraph. Sometimes I get applications that I don't read because I don't get a paragraph. I get a book. I'm not going to read a book. 
To be on the expert council, you have to be an expert. Experts make the complex seem simple, and they're good at condensing things. So there you go. Uh, next up, a uh, really great member of the council here, of course, John Pugliano from InvestableWealth.com and the Wealth Studying Podcast. He just has some thoughts. Like he didn't wait for your question on this. He's looking. He's he's heard me talk about the everything shortage and there's opportunities with it. So he's going to talk about profiting from that. He's going to talk about stagflation of the 70s, inflation of today, the difference, and a few other things. With that, here we go, John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. Well, there's a lot of turmoil going on right now in the stock market, in the crypto markets, in the economy in general, with fears of shortages and inflation. I've seen some very interesting things happen in the market over the last couple weeks. I want to give you some commentary on that and give you some ideas where perhaps you can profit in the stock market and take advantage of these shortages and in this inflationary pressures that we're under. But I also want to give you some explanations. And before I get to any of that, I want to start off by saying that everyone right now, if you have a job, you should be looking at these shortages as an opportunity to prosper, not as a time to withdraw and panic. And specifically for you people that are employed, this is probably the best time that you've had in the last 30 years to try and get a pay raise because wage pressures have never been more favorable in your lifetime. And remember, you make hay when the sun is shining. So right now, because of these labor shortages and the general inflationary environment, conditions are extremely favorable for you to get a raise. So go to your boss and talk to him. Make sure that he knows that you're putting wage pressure on him and see what you can do to increase your overall compensation, whether it's a direct pay raise or whether it's additional benefits or whatever. Again, take advantage of the opportunity. Make hay while the sun is shining. Okay, now it's just as far as the general economy and stock market and things. There's been a lot of volatility in the last couple weeks, and the headlines have been very scary about the effects of inflation and price increases and just overall shortages and how that's going to affect corporate profits and drive down stock prices. You've even seen the collapse of crypto pricing. But if you ignore the drama of the headlines and you dig down into the data, I think there's a lot of really reassuring numbers there. And I think what we're continuing to see is a rotation out of the stay-at-home economy those things that were favored by a COVID shutdown, and the new economy, which will be profiting from the reopening. And just like there was a lot of pain and rotation going into COVID, there's going to be a lot of pain and turbulence as the economy reopens. But on both sides of that equation, there's opportunity. I know last year was tragic for a lot of people. I sympathize with you. But I know myself and other people that were prepared, we made small fortunes last year. And I think that prosperity wave is going to continue. It's just going to be different. Looking at the underlying market and economic indicators, I don't see near the turbulence and the volatility that's being trumped up in the media. The VIX volatility index has not only been tame, but even with the recent spikes that we've seen on these days of large selling, the VIX is remaining well below the panic peaks that we've seen over the last 12 months. Also, there's been a great deal of stability in key indicators like interest rates, the U.S. dollar valuation, and even the price of gold. Gold right now is priced almost exactly at its 200-day moving average and at the midpoint of the range that it's been trading in for the past 12 months. So those are indicators of long-term stability, not rampant inflation or a collapsing economy. And I think the reason for this is that you have to ask yourself a couple basic questions. Right now, is the economy experiencing shortages or scarcity? 
And therefore, are we going through inflation or stagnation? Now, I'm erring on the side that I think we're just in inflationary pressures, that a lot of this is transient. The high lumber prices and copper, other building and commodity materials, they're coming off of their peaks right now, but they're in a phase of backwardation where their long-term future prices are much lower than their current values. And in terms of the stock market or other asset investments, inflation is actually your friend. It's stagnation that can kill you. Stagnation occurs when you lose purchasing power with your dollar, and at the same time, the economy doesn't grow. And so your assets not only can't keep up with inflation, but they actually lose value. On the other hand, if you're invested in the right assets and they're growing and appreciating assets, then they can not only keep up with inflation, but you can even get a significantly higher return. And so in spite of the devaluation of the purchasing power of the dollar, I do see the economy continuing to grow as we get into this reopening economy, but it's going to be in select sectors. These high commodity prices and all these shortages will eventually get mitigated because they are shortages, it's not scarcity. Scarcity would imply that there aren't enough inputs into the system to grow the economy. Shortages, on the other hand, is just bottlenecks in the manufacturing or supply or other distribution systems. I'll give you an example. Everybody knows that we've recently seen historically peak pricing in lumber products. But what you're not aware of, unless you probably own forest land, is that timber prices did not skyrocket or really even escalate like lumber prices did. You see, the shortage isn't that we don't have enough trees. In fact, if you factor in Canadian timber prices into the overall U.S. equation, then we're really awash in woodlands. The bottlenecks have all been at the sawmills and at the processing plants to make the 2x4s and the plywood and the other building products. So it's a shortage because of a bottleneck in the manufacturing or distribution network. It's not a scarcity in the underlying natural resource. Oil prices have a similar story, although it's a little bit different. There is no lack of oil reserves right now. The only reason the price is where it is is because of the discipline of the OPEC plus cartel. The cartel has been extremely disciplined and effective in curtailing and cutting back production well, well below what their daily output could be. And they are holding back production to maintain high oil prices. In fact, this week, one of the big reasons we've seen a drop in oil prices is because the Biden administration is rumored to be taking off sanctions against Iranian oil. That's because Iranian oil has been off the market for, I don't know, three or four years. If that production comes on full bore, then the spigots are going to be wide open and you'll see a major impact downward on oil prices. Now, I'm running out of time here, but the big thing to consider in terms of the economy and the stock markets and asset prices, the biggest single determining factor is the Federal Reserve monetary policy and how it affects interest rates and the supply of money. And I don't have time to get into it right now. I'm running out of time. But because of a number of reasons, I don't see the Federal Reserve drastically increasing interest rates or cutting back on the money supply anytime soon. And if for no other reason, it's because they have to support the biggest drag on the economy going forward, which is the Biden tax policies and other restrictive business regulations. I'll have to get into that in future segments. But here's what I want to leave you with. I think there are a number of opportunities to buy into these dips, and whether it's something like cryptocurrency or the stock market, What you want to focus on is not only buying the dip just because an asset price went down, but focusing on value. 
What's the underlying value of the asset? It doesn't matter how much it's come off of its recent high. And so in terms of something like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is well off its high, but it's institutionally accepted. It's been around for over a decade. And at some point, it'll settle in and consolidate at a bottom and then eventually go back up. So there will be an opportunity to buy Bitcoin. But that doesn't mean that the whole crypto universe is suddenly going to bounce back up. Not every douche coin is going to go back to its previous highs because they don't have underlying acceptance or use case. And the same logic is what I apply every day in investing in the stock market. These one-trick ponies that saw massive price gains during the shutdown economy, things like video conferencing software Zoom or contract verification DocuSign or exercise bike Peloton, I think those companies were one-hit wonders, their glory days and their peaks have long since passed, and they probably had a lot farther to drop. On the other hand, good, solid technology companies that benefited during the shutdown, they're going to pull back now, but eventually they will recover and go on to all-time record highs. That's Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, those type companies. But I think the real opportunity to make money during the reopening economy is going to be in the service sector. The product sector bloomed and blossomed during the shutdown. But now that people can go out and travel and experience things, they're going to be seeking services. And those services are going to be in short supply. And so prices and profits will go up. There are a lot of examples. Again, I'm out of time. But a couple weeks ago, I did a video over my YouTube channel where I gave a list of 12 stocks that are in the elective medical procedure category. And that's a classic example of a service sector that is going to really bloom and blossom during this reopening because of all the people that have put off elective type surgeries or elective procedures or even just regular road maintenance visits to their doctor or to their dentist. And these companies are not only going to be favored with demand, but they also have the opportunity to raise and hold on to prices because in most cases they're being paid by a third party like an insurance company, and so they don't even have to worry if the consumer can afford it from an out-of-pocket expense. And I think you're going to see the profits of these companies escalate. Boy, that's just my opinion. Thanks for the opportunity to answer your questions. Until the next time, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Two things. First, we're going to make him a crypto convert. It's coming. Can't you feel it? Can't you tell? Can't you right there at the end? Can't you see that he's beginning to see the light on crypto? It's it's hard for some people, you know, uh, especially conventional finance people. It's it's one of the hardest crossovers to make into that world. He'll probably become a freaking crypto genius over the next year. I'm just saying. All right, the other side of this though, I think I completely agree with his assessment. I I think I am less optimistic about the timeline to unwind for this. He's right. We do not have shortages of the raw materials for the production of the things people want to buy. We have two fundamental problems, though. One, a shit ton of it comes from overseas, and they have their own problems. And unlike our country, who is hell-bent on its own stupidity and seeing exactly how far up our own ass we can shove our head, most other countries actually look to solve their own problems before they worry about somebody else's problems. 
Most countries actually do that. I know it's insane, but most countries, to at least some degree, are nationalistic. The, the, the needs of their nation come before the needs of other nations. We don't do that. They do. When you live on imports and other nations have problems, you have a problem. So there's like the, the, uh, the material economy, the consumer goods economy. Like that shit comes from China, the Philippines, etc. On top of it, there are raw materials that we are highly dependent on that can really hurt us that we have not fixed our problem for, like raw materials for making medications like antibiotics. So still most of that is still coming from China, despite everything that's happened. So we have that kind of that bottleneck. Right? I agree they're bottlenecks. The stuff exists or can be made to exist, but if you ain't got it, you ain't got it. The other problem we have, and I... I just don't know what it's going to take to fix this. People don't want to work again. People don't want to go back to work. And so why is there a shortage of refined oil into gas getting to the pump? Forget the pipeline hacking. Like I told you guys, we had this problem here in Dallas that doesn't rely on that pipeline months ago showing up. And it's because there's not enough people willing to drive the trucks. That's one side of it. And the truck drivers say, no, Jack, no, no, no. There's plenty of us. There's not enough oil for uh, gas for us to pick up and deliver. You're right. There's still not enough of you driving trucks. But the refineries have a labor shortage. The pipelines have a labor Everybody has a labor shortage right now. Everybody has a labor shortage right now. The restaurants have labor shortages. The widget manufacturers have labor shortages. There's a labor shortage. And it's not that there's, and it's, it's a lot, what's, what's crazy about it is it's exactly like everything else John was talking about. We don't have a shortage of people. We have a shortage of people willing to get off their ass and do a job. And then within some of these things, like you can literally take any human being with an IQ over 80 that can fog a mirror and give them a job. Some of these jobs require qualified people. And I'm continuing to hear things that are very disturbing, very disturbing, including one of my contacts just said, we're starting to shut down work. They're in the construction industry, which is exploding right now. We're starting to turn down and shut down work because we can't buy the material to do the work with. Like, the client's willing to pay more, we're willing to pay more, we can't get it. This is going to take a long time to unwind. I agree with John, it will, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be that game of whack-a-mole we talked about this week. It, it, it really is. So, what I think that means is that, one, he said if you have a job, don't, think that you can't lose your job while the economy recovers. Don't think you can't be temporarily laid off while the economy recovers, even in a booming sector. If your job requires on you having material or someone else having material, you can have enough of a shortage to have shutdowns. That's happening now. Right? Um, and then it doesn't matter if it will eventually come back if you need it and you can't get it. So be careful with how you balance things right now. I do think he's right. There's tremendous opportunities. And it is going to be good to have capital 
over the next six months to 12 months, there will be major opportunities to buy things, whether they're things for yourself to keep and use or investments to be made, which are even better. Because if I buy a thing, even a tool, it, it only can do so much for me. If I can buy into something that continues to pay me for 10 years or more, that's really powerful. Again, John and I both would tell you, read The Richest Man in Babylon. That might be more important right now than it ever has been in the lives of most adults in America today. Richest Man in Babylon, including, look it up on YouTube. And the whole thing is on YouTube. You can listen to it all for free as an audiobook on YouTube, really. All right, and that's, that's a good financial return. You pay nothing. You take the time and you listen to it and you learn and then you use the information for the rest of your lives. Next up... Um, We have one here from, or I should say for, Patrick Rohrman on the minimal equipment necessary to go into business sharpening knives for other people. Hey guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week's question comes from Bill. Bill says, if I was going to offer, offer professional knife sharpening, Would the work sharp knife and tool sharpener, Ken Onion Edition, be sufficient enough to provide the quality expected when offering this kind of service? Bill. Hey, Bill, thanks for the question. Um, don't think that I am uh, trying to beat you up with this question, uh, but I'm going to break it down into maybe some um, – this is the way that I read it and – I'm going to give you my point of view and why I do what I do and what I would recommend that somebody do if they were going to start a sharpening service. So you asked if it would be sufficient enough. I understand that we all have limited budgets and we want to start maybe a side hustle or a business, but we don't have a whole lot to spend. So I would try to ask myself like how much what is my budget and what are my goals so the goals that i would have would be to have happy customers repeatable results a good roi and something that's easy to use so i've broken the ken onion down to its pros and its cons and i'm going to compare it to the sharpener that I use, and I also sell on my website. Some of the pros to the Ken Onion. It has a variable speed, which I really like. Sometimes you need to remove a lot of steel quickly. and you know Sometimes you're working on really thin blades that are going to build up heat quickly. So you would want to use a slower speed and uh, lighter passes on something like that. With the Ken Onion work, you know, work sharp edition, you can pick that, uh, it's 200 surface feet per minute, I believe, or 800. And I think you can, uh, possibly do anything in between. So I like that. I like the fact that it's got variable speed. And I like the fact that it's got a slow enough speed. It's not toasting blades. Um, it's affordable short term. So the work sharp, is a very affordable unit. I believe it's somewhere between the $130 and $200 range. And that's an investment just about anybody could make 
for starting a business. Um, the, the unit that I use and sell is $500. It's a little bit more, you know, it's quite a bit more expensive, but yet that's a very small investment if you're going to start a business. It's also lightweight and portable. So this is going to be very valuable. It doesn't take up much space. Um, very easy to throw in your car, go to the farmer's market, make some money. I like that. Then how durable is it? You know, I really don't know um, how durable it is. I know that it has some plastic parts. I'm sure that it's not really made for commercial use. And so that's something to keep in mind. The sharpener that I use and sell, I have sharpened hundreds, if not thousands of blades on the sharpener, and it's still going strong. So as far as durability goes, um, I'm not sure about the Ken Onion, but the one that I use, very durable, will last you many years. What are the cons? Well, first of all, the Ken Onion has really small belts. They are larger, I believe, than the WorkSharp uh, version of this sharpener, which is good because the larger the belt, the cooler your blade stays. It gives that belt time to cool off before it comes in contact with that edge again. These belts are also more expensive. So with uh, the WorkSharp belt, I'm not too sure if you can get them from anywhere else other than WorkSharp. The belts that I use on my sharpener, the 1x30s, they're an industry standard. You can buy them from many different suppliers. And so they're a lot more inexpensive. I believe I pay about 50 cents a belt uh, for the belts that I use on my sharpener. Uh, one other con to the WorkSharp is you have very little control over the angle that you're holding that blade. They have a guide, but the guide is made to fit a variety of knives, and you have very little surface contact, and that surface contact is really close to the belt itself. The further you get out away from the edge and the further you get from from uh, the belt, the more control you have over the angle. So the sharpener that I use, it has a clamp that clamps onto the back of the knife. And then the guide rail that's controlling the angle is a good distance from the edge of the knife. It's get, it gives you a lot more control over the angle of that uh and it gives you a lot more repeatable edge. That's going to help you sharpen knives faster and give you a better overall result. So, in summary, the Ken is not a magic bullet. It does require skill to use. I've had people show me knives that they've destroyed, that have been destroyed on a sharpener similar to it. There's been uh, deep gouges in the blade, even blades overheated just from uh, improper use of a small sharpener like that. The other part to your question was uh, about the quality expected. The public, the general public, you're going to get a, a wide spectrum of what they expect. Some people just want you to make the knife sharper than it is, and then other people are going to expect uh, the best edge possible. The kid onion is going to give, is going to put an edge, I believe, <clears throat> if you're skilled at using it, that most people will be happy with. 
So <clears throat> I believe you could start a business with a kid on your work sharp, but I personally would look to give the best quality edge that people could expect. And I don't believe that's the right tool for the job. I hope this has been helpful. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. If you have more questions for me, feel free to send them to Jack or uh, send me a question at Patrick at mtknives.net. Thank you. Have a great day. So whenever this subject's come up, I've always been more pro on the work sharp than Patrick. In this case, I'm more negative. No, don't do it. I mean, just don't. Um, my my defense of the Ken Onion work sharp is for the average person sharpening their personal knives, all of the negatives are offset by the cost savings and the ease of use. If you're going to do something for money, I expect that you intend to get really, really good at it. And you're going to do volume to make money sharpening. Lots of volume. Not lots of volume, not lots of money, period. It won't be worth it. Sharpening 10 knives a week will not make you enough money to make it worth going down to farmer's market. By the way, I've seen people make really good money at farmer's markets just sharpening knives. I mean, like a line of people waiting to drop a knife off and 20, 30 knives laying on the table. Sometimes whole sets of knives at $5 a knife. And if you get good and quick, that you can, I mean, you can make more money on a weekend doing that than you can on a lot of other really good side hustles. The Ken Onion is a personal tool. It is not a professional tool. So as, as much as Patrick steered you toward a more professional thing, I, I don't even care about the good parts of the workshop in this comparison. It is not a professional's tool. It is a hobbyist tool. It is, I don't want to pay a Patrick to do my knives for me, and I don't want to sit down and spend hours with a, with a whetstone tool. It is, I want to take care of my kitchen knives and just have them be sharp. I love my Ken Onion workshop. It's why it's in T-Spaz. I do not sharpen my $500 Patrick Rorman customs with it. I sharpen my, you know, my, my Cutco's with it. I sharpen my kitchen knives with it. Um, it is what it is, and it's great for what it is. Anyway, again, no, not for professional sharpening. Now, here's a, here's a different way to look at it. If you have enough friends and neighbors that you can use a work sharp to make enough money to buy a professional sharpening tool, well, okay. Otherwise, no. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take another one. This one on um, toxins and cleansings and things like that from Dr. Kenberry. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry. Today I'm answering a question from Jim G. Jim writes, for folks taking active steps to improve their health like eating a keto diet, is it important to consider detoxifying the body? As I've heard that shrinking fat cells can release toxins back into the body. Is this true? And if so, what are some good ways to accomplish this? Some say charcoal, others say zeolite minerals. I'm concerned it is all just snake oil. Yeah, okay, great question, Jim. Uh, yeah, it is mostly all of it snake oil. Your body, entire body, is a self-cleaning oven, okay? You don't have to buy a single product to detoxify your body. As you're losing fat, burning up fat out of cells, you, you might release some toxins into your body. That's true, but you want to release those back into your bloodstream 
so that your liver can then detoxify them and then your kidneys can excrete them and get rid of them. That's how your body does this. So there is a method of detoxifying your body. It's called fasting. And I'm not talking about doing a 7 or a uh, 14 or a 40-day fast. If you'll implement some daily fasting into your regimen, try to go for 16 hours a day without eating, not only is that going to help you burn more fat along with a keto diet, but it's also going to make it easier for your liver to detoxify any toxins that are released from that were stored in your fat cells. That is the ultimate cleanse for your liver, for your kidneys, and for your entire body. If anybody tries to sell you a specific cleanse for your liver, kidneys, brain, heart, butthole, any of that stuff, it is a waste of money. It is not ever going to be as good and as thorough and as complete as fasting. Now, if you want to do a longer fast, say 24 hours or 36 hours, that's perfectly safe and fine as long as your body fat percentage is above, say, 10%. But I, I do a daily fast of somewhere between 18 and 20 hours, and this detoxifies my body completely, and I have no problems with that. I hope this helps, Jim, and I hope it helps a lot of other people not to be duped into buying these bullshit cleanses that you see on the Internet. This is Dr. Barry. See you next time. I completely, 100%, 1,000% honestly agree with everything. My addition to this, though, is, and I think this is very important for people switching to keto or going back to it after falling off a wagon. And if you're going back, it's probably less important. You do not need anything to detoxify with. Like, you will de your body will detoxify. That does not mean... You will not experience the effects of those toxins being released into your system and that they may not manifest them in themselves in various ways, such as keto flu, such as um, gout or gout-like symptoms. I'm not sure it fully is gout because my understanding of how bad true gout hurts uh, is is almost completely incapacitating, and I can tell you what I experienced was extremely painful. I don't have a word for it other than gout, but it wasn't like having a baby, which is how some people have explained it. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I experienced being very cold when I first started losing weight, and I don't mean once I lost it, which makes sense because you have less fat for insulation. During the losing process, I don't know if the chills that I had, and they weren't really like chills like when you're sick. It was like, Damn, like I'm turning up the air conditioner, right? And I don't know if that was related to it or not. But the thing that happened to me was I would break out in basically zits, pimples, in weird places that didn't make any sense. Without kind of like when you get a pimple, you know, kind of like you can tell like tomorrow this is going to be worse type of thing. Like there is no pimple. And then there's a pimple to the level of like a small tiny boil the next day, like on the inside of your arm or inside of your leg. And the only explanation I have for that is this flood of toxins as I burned off fat, much of it that had been on my body for well over a decade. And did it very, very, and you loot, you do it very, very quickly. I don't think you need to do anything except be prepared to drink water, intermittent fast, like Ken said. And to accept that you need to get through it. It doesn't last forever. My wife had really bad rashes. I had some rashes, but nowhere near what my wife did. These are all the symptoms, I think, personally, my opinion, of 
these toxins flooding your body at high levels as they come out of your fat, and your body does a perfectly fine job of getting rid of them. The reason I think it's important that we tell people this, people go keto, low carb of some sort, or even something like Whole30, where maybe they're eating more carbs, but they are going into fat burning, they're going into detoxification, and they feel bad. And if you do not prepare them mentally and emotionally for the possibility, and I would say it's about half of people experience enough of it for it to, for it to be disconcerting when it happens, then they say, well, I tried it and it didn't work for me. And it's like a person who's a heroin addict saying, well, when I stopped taking heroin, I felt like shit. Yeah, you did. That doesn't mean you should start taking heroin again. That means you have to get through the withdrawals. And so that's that's my I don't disagree at all. Just know that just because your body will do it doesn't mean that it won't do something to you while it's happening. Next up, we have a question about moldy coffee for Nicole Sauce. Well, good afternoon, TSP. This is Nicole Sauce from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question from Joe the Pool Dude. Is moldy coffee... A thing. Details. I was listening to the founder of Bulletproof, and he said that there's a big problem with mold on coffee beans. His branded coffee is tested and supposedly mold-free. The toxins in mold can survive roasting and brewing. So is there a real issue with moldy coffee? And if so, how do I know if my coffee is tainted? Is it a real issue or just a marketing point? Joe, I got this question from you in February. And then was getting ready for my spring workshop. I ended up needing to do a lot of research into the mold and coffee issue because you can't just walk up to other roasters and ask this question and get a well thought out answer. And the answer is, in my opinion, and I'm going to be really clear, this is just my opinion, it depends. Here's what I found out. The mycotoxins in coffee exist and the reason they're there is when coffee is grown it's it's the pit of a fruit and then it is basically fermented and the fruit removed from the pit and then that pit is dried shipped to us and we roast we grind it we roast it we grind it we brew it we drink it and at the end of that process if at the beginning of the process of of making the fermentation and getting that coffee cherry into uh, the coffee bean that you see best practices are not followed there may be some mold in the air that is allowed to grow more than it should and if that happens then you can have aflatoxin fuminosin and some other molds present on the dried product but here's the deal Whenever you dive deeply into where you find these molds, what you find out is they are in much, they're in high enough percentages on other foods like corn, wheat, barley, cereals, than they are in your coffee. In fact, coffee doesn't even make the, the cut on any of the scientific papers that I found worried about high levels of those toxins in our food source. In Africa, it's worse than in Europe. That's the other thing is the, More affluent countries have a tendency to have food with less mold on it. And that's because what makes this problem worse is after you've introduced a little teeny bit of mold into something, if you store it wrong, then it is allowed to grow. Now, you ask if the roasting and brewing and serving 
fixes the mold problem because one would think when you heat it up, it goes away, right? Well, kind of. When you roast, you do reduce any possible molds on the coffee. And when you brew it, you reduce them further. But if you have mold present, there still can be mold in that final cup of coffee. And at this point, I'm pretty sure I've grossed everybody out and you're never going to have coffee again, right? How do you know if there's no mold in your coffee? Well, if you're bulletproof coffee, you can pay to have every batch tested and go through a rigorous process of ensuring there's absolutely no mold. My suspicion would be if we looked at the lab reports, however, that they are assuring that the mold is under a certain uh, level, a certain number of micrograms per kilogram of weight is what's considered safe. So with the aflatoxin, it's one to 20 micrograms per kilogram. The coffee reports that I saw often have 0.001 micrograms per gram, uh, uh, micrograms per kilogram uh, of weight based on what people would consume. And so the levels that are in the coffee in general are well below what you would just be getting by breathing too closely to corn. However, there's the other side of this corn. I'm talking about coffees from farms that use organic growing practices that are getting enough money per pound of coffee because they're selling direct to roasters that they can afford to take extra steps to be careful in the initial harvest and fermentation process of the coffee cherry. And then they go through a supply chain that has proper storage along the way. And then they go to a roaster who has proper storage. The flip side of that coin is some of the really, really cheap beans that are out on the market are not put through the same steps. So if you're looking at coffees that are the cheapest you can get, that don't taste very good, aren't from a verified source, it is more likely that will have more mold and could be branching over into a more toxic level. However, those coffees, I'm a lot more worried about chemical pesticides and other residues that are on them than I am the mold at that point. So it really comes down to what you think is best for you. If you want 100% to know that your coffee is mold-free, then look at providers like Bulletproof who who do lab testing as part of their normal process. I didn't reach out to Black Rifle to see if they do the same thing. However, if you are working with craft roasters who source their beans carefully from farms and do that direct trade approach, it's very unlikely that a single source bean is going to have a lot of mold unless somebody did something horribly irresponsible. So it comes down to the choice is yours on if you're concerned about it or not. If somebody has a really high mold sensitivity, they shouldn't be having probably coffee anyway or any grains of any kind or peanuts or almonds or any of the nut families that also grow these molds. And hopefully they've looked into what those things are because if you're so sensitive that the limits that are in place for, you know, quote unquote, what's safe to bring into your body then you need to go beyond your cup of coffee and go into all the other places that you're being exposed to these sorts of molds. That's my opinion. Of course, if you want to get coffee that comes from 
craft roasters who roast in small batches. There's a couple in our network. Mai Tai Coffee does a great job. Brian Norton's Food Forest Farms does a great job. And of course, Holler Roast Coffee, my company, does a great job. All of us are sourcing by the bag from reputable sources. I've looked at, you know, all, all three supply chains and they know what they're doing. There are other micro roasters all over the country though. You can walk out the door down the road and you'll probably find one. They'll be excited to talk to you about where their beans come. The what I do in my life for coffee, cause I, while I love hollow roast, I don't always drink hollow roast because I want to taste what other roasters are doing. Is I do ensure that they're doing that direct coffee purchase so that I know that it's coming from a farm and the money, more money's going to the farmer and their employees so that they can afford to handle the beans responsibly and therefore handle our food responsibly. I hope this helps you defragment what you want to do there, Joe. And if you're a food scientist out there listening to this, like banging your head against the podcast and you want to add to this, email me. It's Nicole at livingfreeintennessee.com. I'd love to do a part two to this. I was in a morass of scientific papers trying to even find the problem on this one. And the best I could do was that the farms that get less per pound are more likely to make the mistake and then it might go into the supply chain wrong. So if you have a different insight, I'll be happy to share it with the TSP audience. With that, guys, go out and make it a great week. Good to know, and uh, dry and heat have always been the enemy of mold. So I didn't think it would be that big of a thing to worry about. Next up, uh, Jeff Lawton on permaculture with a three-acre pond. Man, somebody asked me what I would do if I had a three-acre pond, and my response was, put a really big fence around my property and never leave. Anyway, with that, Jeff, take it away. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And we have a listener's question here that uh, wants to know how to get rid of an overabundant aquatic weed on a three-acre rural pond. Now, <clears throat> this um, this is something we need to understand about ponds. Um, ponds create soil faster than forests. So uh, shallow marine systems are the fastest systems, fastest ecosystems to create soil, but that's saline soil at our estuaries and our mangroves and our river mouths. And then the next fastest soil creation in nature is shallow lakes and ponds. So when we put these dams in, we're putting in systems that create soil faster than forests. Um, so it's shallow lakes and ponds, then forest, then prairie, and then um, if we're good gardeners, it's human zone one gardens that come um, next, if you call them ecosystems, which I think we should. So you are going to fill the pond up over time. So um, our listeners have been advised that you could use diquat, uh, which is not keen about, um, combined with copper sulfate. So you're just going to put in a, a, a commercial herbicide full of estrogen and it's going to poison everything in the ponds and it's going to look like the Florida dead ponds of... Um, real estate. So that's not the way to go. Um, and he does make uh, a statement here that um, the pond now is um, really filling up. So um, there's um, approximately three surface acres in size, but the areas of concern are only about a quarter of an acre of the total pond. So um, when they purchased the property in 1981, uh, the deepest part of the pond was 20 feet. Currently, it's only about 10 feet. 
and uh, the land is surrounded by mostly oak trees, but there's been no agricultural runoff uh, since the 1990s. So, um, so you did have nearly 10 years of agricultural runoff, which is a lot. Um, and um, then you've got a lot of oak trees with loads and loads of water um, that's going through there and through the catchment and taking lots of leaves with it. Now, we all know what it's like when you look at a, a, um, a gutter on a roof. Uh, it doesn't take long when it gets blocked up with leaves. So you've got trees growing out of the gutter and you start off with a zinc alum gutter, not a lot of soil creation in that. But then as soon as there's some leaves and some water, you've got a shallow little lake in your, in your gutters. It dries out and trees start germinating up there next to the roof. So that's how it all works in your ponds. Um, it's very, very fast soil creation. Now, it, there's a, there's a, a depth of weeds that you need to understand. Um, Anchored plants like lilies, uh, which have their leaves on the surface, but their roots stand deep in the, in the mud at the bottom of the pond, um, they, they stop at eight feet. Any deeper than eight feet, you don't have lilies. Now, any plant that comes to the surface and sticks its head out all the time is an emergent, um, and that means that they, they, they stop at two feet. So that, those are mostly your reeds and your and the type of plants we use in reed beds actually, but they're they're the edge side plants. And then after that, you get edge plants that grow on the edge of the pond, but out of the water in the waterlogged soil on the on the on the dry land. But it's actually waterlogged dry land, if that makes sense. And then you get underwater weed that actually doesn't come to the surface, uh, but it needs a certain amount of sunlight. So that proliferates somewhere between the eight feet and the two feet, mostly around the two feet. And what you've got there is you've got to build up the soil that's been very, very rapid. But it, it's not, you know, you're talking 1981, so we're 40 years into it. And um, if there's been any cattle grazing around the pond, any animals grazing around and muddying up the edge, that's going to speed up the soil creation and the erosion on the edge. Um, there's been agricultural runoff. It's going to ban to have sediment with it and soil particles. That's going to build up the runoff. But even if it's just oak forest, there's enormous amount of leaves coming down and most of those trees are deciduous and they're dropping and flowing through. So what you need to do, instead of getting the poison bottle out and going against nature or going into battle with nature, you want to work with nature. That's great anaerobic soil you've got down there. It's not good, no good for growing in an anaerobic state because it's anaerobic organisms in this, in the airless medium at the bottom of the pond that do that fantastic soil creation. But if you can get it out and pile it up and let it dry out, all those little anaerobe organisms die and become food for aerobic organisms. Now, that'll happen on its own. You can speed it up by spraying it with a compost tea extraction or just a, a, a compost extraction in water, um, and, and it, it'll rapidly become very, very high-quality soil. Or you just pile it up and leave it for a few months. It'll turn it a high-quality garden soil. So you've got an asset. you just got to get it out. Now, you can get a dredge and pump it out and, and, and wash the water back into the pond um, and filter out all your sediment into piles. Or you can drain the pond. If you can drain it out, pump it out, cut a slot in it and repair it later and get in there with a bulldozer or a front-end loader when it's dried out and take out that soil, you've got a great asset. So, but it's going to happen again, isn't it? It's going to happen maybe slower if you haven't got agriculture running in now or, 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 or any cattle on the outside or stock on the outside of the pond. But what you can do is when you've got the earth mover there, 
you can put in catchment ponds above, so little silt traps that where the main flow of water runs towards the pond, you can put in a little tiny silt trap pond um, and and now you can put reeds in there as a catchment. So you can put a silt trap pond, shallow silt trap pond full of reeds, or you can even fill it full of gravel and reeds, so it's like a reed bed, and then you take out the reeds when it gets choked and thin them out so they keep functioning and you compost those. But you're taking out the sediment because the reeds grow on the sediment. Now you can also put in sequences of little swales around the contour above the silt trap pond. So you can have a catchment swale that's like a silt trap swale and you can plant mop crops that take up the silt. Um, there's all kinds of valuable crops. You've got willows in the northern hemisphere, which have fantastic roots for taking out sediment. So you can have a swale planted to willows. Um, the swale itself can be full of mulch, but it's going to fill up with mulch anyway from all your oaks. Um, so you can have a sequence of these alternately overflowing at either end and then into a silt trap pond or one or two or three little silt trap ponds. Now you're going to have a pond that's really clear it's going to have less sediment and it, it's, it's going to be much, much prettier. And it's going to take 50 years or 100 years to, to, to start gaining a lot of mud on the bottom. Kind of 40 years, 50 years, that's, you, you, you're, not too, you're not too rapid. It, you can expect a 10 foot of soil on the bottom of your pond, soil creation in 50 years in most situations. But we can design it so that most of the nutrient and sediment is extracted on the way to the pond with the right earthworks. This is classic permaculture earthworks because we're, we're turning the problem into a solution, we're capturing it, and then we can redirect it or we can use it where it actually is. The actual natural function of reeds is to extract the nutrient uh, out, out of the water and make the water clearer and cleaner. And that's how natural swimming pools work. So you can then... As they get thick and clogged up, you can thin them out and you've got composting material as well. So this is a great win, 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 win for everybody. Now, if you really want to do something very funky, you can add a, a, a set of natural swimming pool attachments to your pond. Have a look at the YouTube channel David Pagan Butler, all one word, David Pagan Butler. He's a permie in England. Pretty quirky, but lovely guy. And he's invented the bubbler lift pump. And his natural swimming pools run on 35 watts. I'm building one right now at Zaytuna Farm. I love these things. They're great. Um, now, you can actually add the same technology, very low uh, wattage air pump with bubbler lift pumps around your pond, running through reed beds, and you get clearer and clearer water. You can even put floating systems in like this. So I think this is the time in history when this is going to grab a lot of people, and it's going to be the, the turning point where people say, if I can have one of those beautiful ponds that, swim, that are gorgeous to swim in, I'll give up the city and, 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 and the, and the um, um, pollutant drastic life that we lead in the uh, city systems um, where I'm mostly part of the problem and not the solution and I'll move out to the country if I have one of those ponds it'll make it all worthwhile and I'll put in the extra effort to grow 
and, and supply myself with resilience in a lifestyle that permaculture can provide. There you go. Nearly 10 minutes. Long answer, but I love this one. I'm doing it right now. Stay tuned. I'll keep you informed. Cheers. Good stuff from Jeff Lawton. I, I now want to talk about something that is deeply disturbing to me. I'm going to say some things that maybe mitigate the risk to the people involved as to the threats they're receiving. I don't want, because I, I know I have to say this because there are some special children in the audience. I do not want, <laughs> there's special children on both sides of the dichotomy too, clearly. Uh, I don't want any of this to sound like I'm defending what's going on or saying it's not a problem. I'm just saying that I think there's some misinformation involved in the threat, okay? So I have received the same information without solicitation from more than a dozen senior military folks, primarily officers, but also some very senior non-commissioned officers. I'm talking a command sergeant major, I'm talking a master sergeant, and I'm talking a first sergeant. Also, that was all Army, all the NCOs. I've heard this from officers on both sides. Um, I've heard this from a captain in the Navy who lives just down the road from me. So you're talking basically, if you don't are not familiar with military ranks, a captain in the Navy is like a, a lieutenant colonel in the Army, uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Army, a full bird colonel in the Army. I have heard this from a one-star uh, in the Air Force. And... Uh, a variety of other, you know, we're talking field grade and above officers that seem to be the primary source of this information. And I'm sorry, I think I said uh, that a captain in the Navy was like a light colonel, it's like a full colonel in the Army. So these are, again, these are senior members of the military, some with more than 20, some with more than 30 years of service. And it is part of the whole, we are going to purge extremism from the military claim under the Biden administration. Every single one of these people, and before anybody gets offended by the word minority, some of them are minority people themselves, have said they have received the same basic briefing, i.e., I would call this a threat. This group, this panel would come to present on rooting extremism out of the military, And among other things, one of the things that they have said is that they will be scouring social media for all military members' footprints within social media. This is code word primarily for, let's say, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and they will be looking for any association with anything that could be you know, labeled as extremist or racist in any way, shape, or form. And any member of our military with anything like this associated with their activity on social media risks being kicked out of the military. What does extremism mean? This means up into things like posts, and I've heard, again, I want you to understand, this is not a single source. This is more than a dozen men who have voluntarily told me this without me asking because of what I do. Something as simple as being highly pro-Second Amendment may be seen as extremist and lead to you being discharged from service. Additionally, additionally, 
several have pushed back with questions such as, well, if I'm in a group on Facebook and somebody makes a comment about something like that, and I respond to that comment even from a standpoint that would be considered like not extreme, what then? Well, you shouldn't even be in a group like that, so yes. And the 100% reaction to this has been, to every one of these men that have spoken to me about this, some by email, some through messengers, some on the phone, some in real life. I'm going to get kicked out of the military. It's only a matter of time before I get kicked out of the military. Meaning, these tough-ass some bitches, okay, because these are all tough-ass some bitches, these people, who have dedicated their entire life to service, have all been left feeling defeated. And I'm saying every one of them said, they're going to throw me out. From what's been said, they're going to throw me out. Let me tell you what, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. The fact that every one of these men came to that conclusion is why I'm calling a psychological operation a PSYOP. Let's start out with, do I think any of them will? Maybe, probably. I don't know if it'll be any of the ones I know, but I, I'm sure some will be purged as an example, and some of those probably will be, let me, let me put it to you this way. I haven't served in the military for over 20 years. However, I've been closely associated with a lot of people in the military, and because of who I am, there are people that maybe felt safe saying things around me that maybe they shouldn't. And there is racism in our military. Do you know why there's racism in our military? Because there's people in our military and some people are racist. So there, there absolutely will be people to find who fit the definition of, let's say, white supremacists. That's absolutely the case. I will also tell you that for every one person that I could clearly remember that was clearly a racist in the military that was a white person, there was at least one and it might be more like a 1.2 ratio on the other side, there was black that was racist. There was a group of, of, of a small number of individuals in my basic training unit of black guys that were purely hated white people. Does that mean that the army's racist or the military's racist? No, it means that if you get enough people together, some portion of them will be scumbags. I've said that for years. I call it the 10% scumbag theory. So they exist and they can be found. The reason I don't think all these men, you know, basically they were told, like, for being a Trump supporter, you can be labeled an extremist and discharged from the military. If I'm a lawyer right now, and I'm hearing this, I have already picked out my next beach house. I am going to sue the United States government into oblivion, and I'm going to win even with the most liberal judge I can get. I am going to win this. I am going to own a military base. I'm going to have my own freaking F-16 by the time this is over with if you do this the way they're saying they're going to do this. That's how stupid of an idea it is. I am going to own you. 
And I am going to advise every single person that I know that tells me this to tell me everybody they think is going to be included in this. I'm going to bring them into my office. I'm going to give them a briefing as their attorney. And I'm going to say, screw JAG. Don't talk to JAG. Only talk to me. I'm the ambulance chaser. We're going to own their asses. And when this happens to you, if this happens to you, say nothing publicly. Come straight to me and let me handle it. And I will own 10% of the United States military by the time this is over with. I will be the richest lawyer in the country by the time this is over with if they do this. If they do this. So why? If I believe that, and I do, clearly, I'm very emphatic that I believe this, why would you do it? To silence them, to shut them up, and because from this point forward, some things that maybe they couldn't have thrown them out for, they can because now they've been advised. What you're saying, and because the way these are being done, if they were to go back four years and find you criticizing President Obama and being pro-President Trump, that would be enough to, to terminate your military career as a career officer who has served honorably and has been highly decorated and highly like has no blemishes. That's enough to get rid of you. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't care how upside down the world has become. You are not going to get away with that in our litigious society. But, if I advise you of that, the military is not the private sector. If effectively I can make it that you've been ordered not to do these things, no matter how wrong it is, I probably can ax you. And what I also can probably do is get you scared enough to do a few different things. One would be if you really want to preserve your career... You will go back and start deleting everything you can find. Maybe even delete your entire social media presence, i.e. I've shut you up. Two, you're not going to talk about this shit inside the military at all. Again, I've shut you up. Number three, if you are at a place where you can retire, and I want to get rid of you because I want to cut off the head of the military snake. That to, you know, I'm not calling you a snake, right? And I like snakes, by the way. But you cut the head off of the snake, you kill the snake. So one of the problems these scum have is that the military is largely more loyal to the people than they are to the government, as they effing should be. Because let me paint the picture for you. If being pro-Second Amendment is extremist in the military, that is in direct conflict with the oath these men took when they took on the mantle of service to uphold and defend the Constitution against all Enemies, all enemies, foreign and domestic. And domestic. Including if those domestic enemies are in the government itself. And these men of the old guard, these guys have been around 20, 25, 30, 35 years. They remember that. They're not the malleable morons coming into our military now. And I'm not saying all of them are, but there are many. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, just like not all teachers are heroes, not all soldiers are heroes. And I have friends who are or have recently been drill sergeants, and they would, they would absolutely agree, malleable morons is a good term for a large number of these people coming in. And even the ones that aren't, they will be conditioned and trained to do what? What, what do they have to take an oath to do? Obey the orders of the officers and non-commissioned officers appointed over them. So if you can take out the old guard, if you can reduce the leadership 
to the lowest common denominator of obedience and seeking advancement and promotion above duty, it doesn't even matter if the new ones coming in are malleable morons or not. They're going to be put under people who are. And they're going to be trained. And when I talk about, I talk about training and teaching all the time. Training is conditioning an organism so that it must respond a certain way. And that's what they do in the military. I'm a military man. I'm telling you that. You are trained. You are taught some, but trained more. And if you get rid of these people by either shutting them up and silencing them or forcing them out, and then you didn't even have to fire them. Because I'm telling you, every one of these men has been emotionally defeated by this. One of the most recent ones, this gentleman stood right in my yard talking to me, and I could see the complete and utter disgust. Again, this was a naval captain. Complete and utter disgust and defeatism that I've given more than 30 years of my life to service, and they're going to do this to me. I don't think they are going to do it to them. They don't need to do it to them. All they need do is make them believe that it is likely and they will leave on their own. When you're talking about guys with this much time in, they're on the old retirement system. They have guaranteed income for life. All they have to do is say, I'm done at the end of this term, and in some, condition, some situations they can just basically resign. It's a psyop. And I have mixed emotions. Part of me feels they don't deserve you. But another part of me, and maybe it's selfish, feels like we need you. My child needs you. My daughter-in-law needs you. My grandchildren need you. And don't let them do this to you. And I wouldn't fault you either way. But it is a psyop. It is a highly coordinated PSYOP. 100%. It is incredibly coordinated. It is incredibly well thought out. And it is exactly what it is. The more I think about it, the more I'm sure about it. You want me to lay odds on it? 4% at the most. It's what these men have been, co been convinced that it is. They really are going to get thrown out for a Facebook post they made three years ago. 96%. It's exactly what I'm saying it is. It's a psychological operation. Because not one of these men have said, screw them. Screw them. They want to throw me out, let them do it. I'm going to stick to doing what I'm doing. It was so perfectly executed that these tough sons of bitches have been emotionally defeated and just feel like, screw it. And I understand why. They haven't grown weak. They've grown sick and tired of an organization they've dedicated their lives to not fulfilling its mission and being more worried about promotions and safety, safety within, making safe decisions to get the next promotion than to make the enemy dead. The purpose of the military is to make the enemy dead so efficiently that it's not necessary to anymore make the enemy dead. The, the main purpose of a military is the defense of a nation, not the policing of a planet. And those two things have both been thrown away. We're basically coddling terrorists the way the police are asked to coddle criminals, handcuffed, 
put at a disadvantage, and our own nation goes to shit while we deploy money, blood, treasure, and the best among us to third world shitholes that will not change for our presence. In fact, we will make them worse. But you know what? The people in power want to continue that path, and the biggest impediment that they have are the good men, the honorable men that are in positions of strategic leadership. They are not at the top, but they ain't at the bottom, and they ain't in the middle. In fact, I will say they are in the middle. They're in the middle, and they're in senior positions. And they are the final roadblock to this totalitarianism. And so you can't just get rid of them. You make them quietly fade away. That's what's going on. If you're one of them, do what you think is right for you and your family. Do what you think is right. But don't let them scare you. And call a lawyer now and not one from JAG. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us. You can do that. Really, really simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. All you got to do, get on over to tspaz, tspaz.com. Really easy to remember. Just start your online shopping there. No matter what you buy, you will help support us and the work that we do. Today's item of the day is the Mr. Coffee Electric Coffee Grinder. It is back in stock. It disappeared for a long time. It's back now. I love this thing. Uh, I did I did kill one. I, I, I ground oyster shells in it. That didn't work. That was... That was beyond its capabilities and how it was designed to do. Um, <laughs> and there's another way one died. But the, the one that I have now, I've had now for over four years. Uh, I use it as designed, and it works beautifully. I use it for grinding coffee every day, multiple times a day. We make fresh coffee. Uh, Holler Roast, Food Forest Farms, Mai Tai, that type of thing, you know, because we support our supporting vendors in the MSP. Um, but I also use it for grinding, you know, to make pepper powders, onion powder, garlic powder. I don't buy garlic powder. I don't buy onion powder. I buy, you know, granule like uh, I buy dehydrated garlic and dehydrated onions in large quantities. I put them in jars. I I uh, dry dry can them basically. Use a, a sealing tool that I have. It's basically a reverse engineered pressure cooker with a vacuum pump, right? And so I keep them like that. And when I need garlic powder or onion powder, I grind it. And if you try that, you'll never buy garlic powder or onion powder ever again. Uh, I make spice rubs with it. I make pepper powders with it. I even give away one of my go-to recipes in the write-up today. But this thing's like 24 bucks, and it's totally worth it. And if you don't try to grind oyster shells with it, or do in the cold sauce, they do it. You have to read that. Uh, read the write-up to find out what she did to it. Uh, it will last a really long time. It has over 8,000 reviews and 4.5 stars. 8,600 to be exact. Most of the negative reviews are people complaining about the post office. Not really Mr. Coffee's fault. Or people too stupid to figure out that the cord, the power cord, is kind of wrapped up inside it and you can pull it out. And there's tons of complaints about the really tiny two-inch power cord. In the words of Ron White, you can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. Uh, otherwise, it's got great reviews. Check it out again. You can find it at tspaz.com. Get on our social media. You'll be knowing about these items of the day long before the show even comes out, especially if you get in our Telegram channel. 
the Telegram channel, you're not discussing things with other people. You just get my announcements. Follow me on MeWe. Those are your two most assured ways that you'll see the information I put out. I'm also on Float. I'm on Gab and some other places as well. Of course, I have an Odyssey channel, a YouTube channel. And remember, um, the other thing you can do is join our membership program. You do that, you get discounts. pays for itself. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And with that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today is The Wall. Pink Floyd? No, no, not not Pink Floyd. Uh, John Cougar? No, no. Remember, it's Willie Nelson week. Yeah, Willie Nelson did a song called The Wall in 2014. What in those kind of walls? It was that wall that we all run into. It was about a particularly hard year for Willie. And it's a really great song. And uh, sooner or later, we all run into that wall. And the wall comes down on us. And then we have to make a choice. Do we get back up or do we stay down? I always side with getting back up. Remember, make the most of your dash. With that, it's been Jack Spirico wrapping up another week with you. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I took all more than I could handle. I bit off more than I could chew. I hit the wall. I went off like a Roman candle, burning everyone I knew. I hit the wall. I hit the wall. Half my life riding on a rocket One world to the next and on and on I hit the wall Taking things to make it make me better Remembering things I never knew I knew I hit the wall I hit the wall And the wall came down Crashing down And there was not a sound Not the sound.